Welcome to part three of this podcast episode titled 20 Years of Patient Safety, where we are drawing on the content from the June 2022 print edition of the Clinical Communique. I'm Associate Professor Nicola Cunningham, the Editor-in-Chief of this series. The June 2022 edition was a very special anniversary edition for us. It was an extended edition showcasing a collection of expert commentaries about patient safety, where we featured some of the most remarkable experts from the fields of medicine, law, ethics and clinical governance. They all have in common a strong commitment to improving patient safety with extensive careers that have seen many challenges and changes take place in this incredibly complex area of work and they have very generously shared their insights with us. In part three of this three-part podcast episode, we feature four expert commentaries that look at how and what we have learned from the past and what the future holds in patient safety work. Professor Ian Freckleton looks at death investigations and COVID-19. Mr. Martin Fletcher and Mr. Paul Shinkfield outline the current and future challenges in patient safety and the role of regulators. Professor Michael Dooley reflects on 20-year anniversaries, that of the clinical communique and Australia's national strategy quality use of medicine. And we finish with a commentary from Professor John Banger that he describes as some random observations from a systems thinker on patient safety. Let's now listen to Luke Ward narrate part three of this three-part episode. Death Investigations in COVID-19 from Professor Ian Freckleton, AOQC. With the public health emergency of COVID-19 easing, the opportunity for reflection on the lessons that need to be learned from the response by governments and institutions to the pandemic emerges. Forensic pathologists, epidemiologists and coroners all have a crucial role to play in identifying systemic flaws that resulted in avoidable losses of life from the pandemic during 2020 and 2021. Learning such lessons is critical to improving preparedness for future strains of COVID and other zoonotic pandemic threats that are looming. The need for accurate data on deaths caused or contributed to by the pandemic was highlighted by the use of diverse criteria in some countries and a failure to apply their WHO standards on the issue. Some countries, such as Tanzania and Turkmenistan, engaged in ongoing denialism about COVID-19 and maintained the fiction that it either did not exist in their country or was not resulting in fatalities. Other countries, including some developed nations, have now been shown to have persistently generated reports of death that underreported mortality. Ultimately, excess mortality statistics comparing pre-pandemic with pandemic death rates have provided a more accurate, albeit imprecise, insight into patterns and numbers of COVID-19-related deaths. Unfortunately, this is not good enough as real-time reliability of pandemic data is vital for enabling timely responses to trends in an evolving pandemic, including as variants and subvariants emerge. However, decisions and poor performance by institutions and governments also have the potential to contribute to deaths during a pandemic, which could have been avoided by timely directions, better preparedness and more suitable provision of care. In the United Kingdom, Baroness Hallett engaged in a consultative process until April 2022 to refine the terms of reference for her wide-ranging inquiry, which is currently underway. In Australia, governments have commissioned a plethora of independent, parliamentary and internal reports on different aspects of how responses to the pandemic have been handled. 
Coroners and investigators of death, such as the Procurator Fiscal in Scotland, have also undertaken inquiries into cohorts of deaths as well as into individual deaths. Again, the approach has not been consistent across jurisdictions with the need for such inquiries to focus upon those deaths from which it was most likely that constructive lessons can be learned. In Australia, the highest profile inquest thus far has been into the deaths of 50 residents at St Basil's Home for the Aged in Victoria. The inquest into these deaths is currently underway before the state coroner, Judge Kane, and is focusing upon the sufficiency of measures deployed by the home for protection of foreseeable at-risk elderly residents during the pandemic. It builds on a November 2020 independent report into the deaths and affords an opportunity to identify failures to take necessary measures and learn lessons from both international and Australian experiences to protect residents and employ available resources as the crisis unfolded. In England and Canada, several high-profile inquests have been convened into COVID-19-related deaths where coroners found the criteria for an open inquest to be satisfied. The Bolton Senior Coroner held an inquest and made findings in March 2021 in relation to the death of a 51-year-old woman who had been treated for gastroenteritis but in fact passed away from vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia. He highlighted the need for awareness amongst medical practitioners of rare responses to COVID-19 vaccinations so that they can be responded to as quickly and effectively as possible. In another inquest in South Manchester, the senior coroner inquired into the circumstances of a man who died of COVID-19-related pneumonia, neck of femur fracture, hypertension and atrial fibrillation. In December 2020, she found that the man had been admitted to hospital for surgery on a fractured hip but had carelessly been placed in a bay where he was exposed to a COVID-19 positive patient. Shortly afterwards, he contracted COVID-19, deteriorated rapidly and passed away. The senior coroner's findings analysed the errors in the hospital's implementation of guidance from Public Health England about placements of patients who were COVID-19 positive. In Canada, the Deputy Chief Coroner of Ontario undertook an investigation into the COVID-19-related deaths of temporary foreign agricultural workers during 2020. In October 2021, he found an absence of pandemic preparations or guidelines for such workers who had been living in congregate conditions, working in close proximity to one another, and some of whom were not officially documented. Amongst other things, he recommended better documentation of such workers to enable more effective contact tracing, the creation and management of public health isolation centres, especially during a pandemic, and the development of culturally appropriate education campaigns for matters such as vaccines to reach persons for whom English is not their first language. In the course of a Quebec inquest, evidence was given by a former health minister that systemic ageism, outdated facilities and inadequate government directions contributed to the deaths of 53 persons in aged care homes early in 2020. In May 2022, the coroner recommended that the province convert private facilities into state-run facilities, improve care, implement better staff-resident ratios and ensure public health response reviews every three years. 
This selection of inquests demonstrates the beginning of formal attempts by coroners to assist the community to learn lessons available from unsatisfactory provision of care to persons at foreseeable risk and groups of persons living in shared care accommodation who were especially vulnerable at different stages of the pandemic. The fact that the inquests, death investigations and formal inquiries, such as that of Dame Hallett, are taking place a significant period of time after key phases of the pandemic does not detract from their importance. The passage of time and the knowledge acquired in the period between the deaths and the completion of investigations provide an opportunity for rigorous identification of shortfalls and reflective evaluation on what measures should be implemented before the arrival of the next zoonotically generated pandemic. About Professor Ian Freckleton, AOQC. Ian is an experienced Queen's Counsel in full-time practice as a barrister throughout Australia, a judge of the Supreme Court in Nauru, a board and committee member, an investigator of allegations of misconduct, a professor of law, psychiatry and forensic medicine, a fellow of learned academies, a journal editor, a speaker at international gatherings, an author, editor and book reviewer, and a scholarly traveller. Ian holds a Doctor of Laws in Health Law at the University of Melbourne and a PhD in Expert Evidence at Griffith University. Ian has appeared in many of Australia's highest profile inquests, including the Lint Cafe inquest in Sydney, the Kumanjayi Briscoe inquest in Alice Springs and the Burke Street Mall inquest in Melbourne. He is currently briefed in the Nelson inquest in Victoria and the Kumanjayi Walker inquest in the Northern Territory. He has been a member of the Coronial Council of Victoria from its inception in 2010. Ian has also written extensively on pandemic and public health law matters. Recent books he has written or edited on such topics include Pandemics, Public Health Emergencies and Government Powers with Bennett, Federation Press 2021, Public Health Law in Australia with Bennett, Federation Press 2022 in press, and COVID-19, Law, Regulation and Human Rights with Bennett and Wolfe, OUP 2022, in press. He is the editor of the Journal of Law and Medicine. He has been a commissioner at the Victorian Law Reform Commission, a president of the Australian and New Zealand Association of Psychiatry, Psychology and Law, deputy director of Monash University's Centre for the Advancement of Law and Mental Health and Vice President of Monash's International Institute of Forensic Studies. In 2021, Ian was honoured with an Officer of the Order of Australia for distinguished service to the law and to the legal profession across fields including health, medicine and technology. Patient safety and the role of regulators current and future challenges from Mr. Martin Fletcher and Mr. Paul Shinkfield. Over the past 20 years, there has been a growing recognition and evidence that healthcare can both help and at times inadvertently harm patients. Much more is now known about the scale and impact of avoidable errors in healthcare. We know that safer patient care requires competent, qualified and safety conscious health practitioners at the sharp end of healthcare delivery. It also requires well-designed processes and systems of care which put the patient at the centre and supports the health and well-being of all members of the team. How should the regulation of health practitioners contribute to patient safety? 
Australia has a national, multi-profession regulatory scheme for over 800,000 registered health practitioners across 16 professions. The Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency works in partnership with 15 national boards to implement the National Registration and Accreditation Scheme. The contribution of the national scheme to patient safety has strengthened over the past decade in three main areas. Firstly, by placing public and patient safety at the heart of professional regulation. While the confidence of the professions in the work of regulation is important, public protection and safeguarding the public interest is our central concern. There are a number of ways in which regulation works to ensure patient safety, including setting standards to ensure only qualified and competent practitioners are registered to practice, systems of accreditation of programs of study to ensure qualifications meet appropriate standards, and having effective ways of responding to concerns about practitioners whose conduct, performance or health may be placing the public at risk of harm. Secondly, a patient safety lens is applied to everything we do. Indeed, the former Council of Australia Government's Health Council issued two policy directions to AFRA in late 2019, which explicitly prioritise public protection. These directions require consultation with patient safety bodies and healthcare consumer bodies on every new and revised registration standard, code and guideline. These have strengthened patient safety as a key regulatory focus. Thirdly, we have worked to ensure a strong patient and community voice in our work. Patient safety improvements globally have rightly emphasised the importance of partnership with patients and their carers. In the national scheme, there are community members on all national health practitioner boards to ensure a community voice in regulatory decisions. A community advisory council provides advice to inform strategic and policy development. There is learning from routine consumer experience surveys, and there is consultation with communities in the review and development of regulatory standards, codes and guidelines. Partnership also means we are taking purposeful steps to engage with communities who may face particular issues with safe healthcare delivery. This includes children, older persons, those living with a disability, survivors of family violence, and LGBTQIA communities. A focus on patient and public safety also needs to consider the potential impacts of regulation on the health and well-being of practitioners and, consequentially, on the patients for whom they care. The majority of health practitioners are competent, professional, honest and committed to high standards of patient care. Regulators undoubtedly need to take swift and decisive action to address practitioners who pose a significant risk of harm to patients. However, many registered practitioners may never receive a notification about their practice. Others may only receive one or two in their careers and actively take steps to learn and improve their practice. AFRA is adopting a more nuanced approach to risk assessment to differentiate between complaints about practitioners. This involves a move away from a one-size-fits-all approach to managing concerns about practitioners to determine the most appropriate regulatory response needed. In many cases, this may include cases of a one-off or honest error that can be addressed without any need for regulatory action. What does the future hold? Three areas of focus are highlighted. 
Firstly, we need to encompass cultural safety as a core part of patient safety for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, as defined by First Nations people. Culturally safe and accessible healthcare is integral to building a healthy life and closing the gap for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's health outcomes. Patient safety is a major feature of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health strategy and reconciliation action plan. Secondly, we need to ensure that registered health practitioners play their part fully in systems of clinical governance within all healthcare settings. At its core, clinical governance requires health practitioners to implement systemic ways to assure and improve clinical quality. Health practitioners in clinical governance roles are a key part of building and leading robust systems of clinical governance. Thirdly, we need to work closely with others within the larger patient safety ecosystem, employers, professional associations, civil society and other regulators to ensure a more holistic view of risk. We all have a role to play in keeping patients safe. With a strong focus on the above areas and with public safety at its heart, the National Registration and Accreditation Scheme is well placed as a key contributor to patient safety in Australia. About Mr Martin Fletcher. Martin is the Chief Executive Officer with the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, starting in December 2009 as the inaugural CEO. Martin holds a Master of Management degree in Public Sector Management, an Honours degree in Behavioural Sciences and an undergraduate degree in Social Studies. He has more than 20 years experience in patient safety, public protection and quality improvement in Australia, the United Kingdom and internationally. Prior to joining AFRA, Martin was Chief Executive of the National Patient Safety Agency, the leading national health service body for patient safety in England and Wales. From 2004 to 2007, Martin worked with the World Health Organization in Geneva to establish a global program of work on patient safety. From 2000 to 2002, he worked with the Australian Council for Safety and Quality in Healthcare to establish the first national program of work on patient safety in Australia. About Mr Paul Shinkfield. Paul is the National Director of Strategy at the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency. He holds degrees in Applied Science Physiotherapy at La Trobe University and Law at the University of Tasmania. He is an experienced health system director and physiotherapist with a special interest in the areas of leadership and management, health system redesign, corporate and clinical governance, professional conduct and regulation, and medico-legal and ethical issues. Twenty-year anniversaries, the clinical communique and Australia's national strategy quality use of medicine from Professor Michael Dooley. The 20-year anniversary edition of the clinical communique is an opportunity to reflect on our progress towards improving the quality of healthcare and achieving patient safety. For me, it is an opportunity to ponder through a lens focusing on medication safety. I had a casual read through every issue to identify cases with a medication-related component, and I asked myself a simple question. Could this case happen today in the health service I work in? Have we learned from these lessons? Have we made improvements to prevent harm relating to medications? 
The cases presented over the 20-year journey include deaths due to administration of medications despite known previous anaphylaxis, administration by wrong route, infusion device errors and wrong drugs given due to lookalike drug names, cases of medication-related deaths due to failures in transitions of care, perioperative complications, the use and failure to use anticoagulants as well as the inappropriate prescribing of opioids are a sobering read. Many of these should have been prevented. Could these cases happen today? Could this happen to those close to us? 20 years is a long time and there have been major advances in therapeutics and technology, but have there been contiguous advances in innovation in patient safety? Improving patient safety includes building awareness, encouraging reflection, strengthening systems and maintaining well-being from the polygon of patient safety. Have we seen and led innovation in patient safety with the same degree of urgency and impact to that of changing therapeutics and the adoption of technology? We need to ask whether we have incorporated safe practices in the prescribing and administration of new medications and in the implementation of digital systems, including electronic medical records and the decision support knowledge base that supports these systems. It has been nearly 30 years since the Quality in Australia healthcare study was published, which highlighted the unacceptable rate of hospital admissions that were associated with iatrogenic patient injury. In 1999, Australia's national medicines policy was launched as a framework based on partnerships between health educators, health practitioners, the medicines industry, healthcare consumers and the media working together. One of the four central objectives was the quality use of medicines. It is now the 20-year anniversary of the implementation of Australia's national strategy for quality use of medicines that sets out the principles necessary to achieve QUM. These principles include the central role of consumers, the essential nature of partnerships, the need for activities to be consultative, collaborative and multidisciplinary, and four system-based approaches to support and encourage QUM. I also had a casual read of that document and pondered the questions again. Have we made improvements over the last 20 years to prevent harm relating to medications? The National Medicines Policy is currently under review after more than 20 years and hopefully will provide renewed momentum in improving the care we provide. In 2017, the World Health Organization released the third Global Patient Safety Challenge, Medication without harm, with the aim of reducing severe avoidable medication-related harm by 50% globally over the following five years. In 2020, the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare published Australia's response with a focus on three flagship areas. These are polypharmacy, transitions of care, and reducing harm from high-risk medications, including insulin, opioid analgesics, antipsychotics and anticoagulants. We have seen significant focus on improving the quality of care associated with antimicrobial and anticoagulants with the adoptions of the clinical care standards for antimicrobial stewardship and also venous thromboembolism prevention. The Opioid Analgesic Stewardship in Acute Pain Clinical Care Standard released this year will hopefully provide further momentum to reduce the risks and harm to patients. QUM and Medicine Safety was announced in 2019 as Australia's 10th national health priority. There is much to be positive about. 
However, if looking through the lens from the perspective of those receiving care, are these steps big enough? The Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights describes what patients can expect when receiving healthcare. This includes the patient's right to receive safe and high-quality care. When we reflect on the achievements over the last 20 years, is that what we actually see in practice? The challenges for health practitioners and all those who support our practice across every level of the healthcare sector is to prioritise patient safety and to continue to learn from our failings. The clinical communique will continue to be an invaluable opportunity to reflect on our progress towards improving the quality of healthcare and achieving patient safety. About Professor Michael Dooley. Michael holds a joint appointment as Director of Pharmacy at Alfred Health and Professor of Clinical Pharmacy at the Centre for Medicine Use and Safety, Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, Monash University. He is an adjunct professor at the Department of Epidemiology and Preventative Medicine, School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine, Monash University. He has contributed to a range of international, Commonwealth and state forums focusing on issues including hospital and pharmaceutical services, policy and medication management improvements. He co-founded the Centre for Medicine Use and Safety of Monash University, which has a hub at the Alfred Hospital. The CMUS integrates academic and applied research to address medicine use and safety issues in the home, community, hospitals, residential aged care facilities and their interfaces. Some random observations from a systems thinker on patient safety from Professor John Barnger. I was delighted to receive an approval from the editors to set my thoughts down in the bulleted style below. I'm hoping to share some of the most important and interesting things I've learned from studying medical errors and patient safety over the last two decades. One, there is a natural inevitable tension between efficiency and safety. As long as clinicians are required to meet an organization's productivity targets, they will be strongly inclined to do workarounds, take shortcuts, and deviate from practice standards. They do not do these things because they are bad people. They do them because they are pressured to meet corporate or institutional expectations, which are often aggressively profit-driven. But a heightened, unrelenting emphasis on efficiency easily leads to ripe opportunities for disaster. Two. James Reason's Swiss cheese model of disaster is perhaps the number one game changer in patient safety science. To understand harm causing error as the result of a system failure rather than a single person's mistake is very counterintuitive. 3. Medical error is medical negligence. Clinicians resist that equation and sometimes lawyers do as well, claiming that negligence requires harming someone and not just making a mistake. But many law dictionaries define negligence simply as an unwarranted or unjustified failure to comply with the standard of care. And that's what medical error is, when a clinician inexcusably doesn't follow the standard of care. 4. And what is the standard of care? Nothing mysterious. Simply what an ordinary, reasonable, prudent clinician would do in like or similar circumstances. Not what God would do, but what the ordinary, reasonable clinician would do. 5. Occasionally I hear clinicians say, there is no standard of care. Everybody does things their own way. Nonsense. 
the standard of care is what we teach in medical and nursing and therapy schools. And while there may be multiple standards of care for a given diagnosis, no one would say that a wrong site surgery, a wrong medication, or a failure to check an armband leading to a patient mix-up and a disaster are congruent with the standard of care. 6. Eric Holnagel's ideas on patient safety are marvellously intriguing. Holnagel wonders why it is that things usually go well in healthcare and clinicians usually keep patients safe. So rather than concentrate on errors, Holnagel thinks we should more explore why it is that we get things right so often. And that is amazing because health professionals, nurses especially, are constantly tweaking the system and their workflow. Do they largely remain within the standard of care? Probably. In any event, things usually turn out well. How does that happen? What special skills did these people have? 7. In line with Holnagel's thinking, I've been intrigued ever since I read Patricia Benner's research on the development of nursing expertise on how professionals develop a knack for things. Over time, they train their unconscious, they come to know where to look, they know when things don't feel right, even though they can't exactly articulate what's wrong. They are extremely efficient, no wasted movements, they hone in on the source of the problem almost without thinking, and they know exactly what to do to remediate it or what intervention has the best probability of a successful outcome. Benner found it takes years to develop this, and some people never get it. 8. Can you teach a person that? Partly. You can expose them to problematic situations, you can show them what should be done, but somehow the motor cognitive system has to absorb those lessons and then be able to generalise from the specific instances they've encountered to whatever novel comes along. 9. Me to a very experienced plumber. George, when do you know a job is going to be difficult? George, before I start. 10. In his book, The Human Contribution, James Reason makes my favourite observations about patient safety. The only attainable safety goal is not zero accidents, but to strive to reach the zone of maximum practicable resistance and then remain there for as long as possible, page 285. And safety is a guerrilla war that you will probably lose, but you can still do the best you can, page 288. 11. What do these quotations imply? Comparing patient safety to a guerrilla war says to me that you never know where the enemy is coming from or how many of them there are. And that's one of the lessons of the Swiss cheese model. When disasters occur, the clinician is dealing with often unrecognised system flaws and sub-optimalities that somehow glom together and enable the disaster. The goal, therefore, is to make it more difficult to commit an error and to eliminate as many hazard opportunities as you can. That's what reason means when he talks about the zone of maximum practicable resistance. You've removed all the variables that you reasonably can that dispose a system towards hazard or peril, and that's where you want to stay, for as long as possible. 12. Years from now, when we look back on the COVID-19 nightmare that we've experienced, we will marvel at all the clinicians who every day went into the breach and grappled with a very formidable adversary. Their sacrifice dedication, knowledge and courage have been overwhelming. Surely this has been one of their finest hours since Hippocrates began imagining the beginnings of modern medicine. About Professor John Banja. 
John is a professor in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine and medical ethicist at the Center for Ethics at Emory University, Atlanta, Georgia, USA. John holds a doctorate degree in philosophy from Fordham University in New York and lectures on topics in medical ethics throughout the United States and Europe. He directs the section on ethics in research and participant advocacy of the Atlanta Clinical Translation Science Institute at Emory. John has published two books on medical error, Medical Errors and Medical Narcissism, Jones and Barlett, 2005, and Patient Safety Ethics, John Hopkins University Press, 2019, along with dozens of essays. He is presently studying how artificial intelligence can improve the quality of healthcare delivery. Thanks for tuning into this podcast episode, part three of 20 Years of Patient Safety. Links to parts one and two can be found at our website, www.thecommunicase.com. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to the commentaries from our experts over the three parts of this podcast. The editorial and nine expert commentaries that we've curated for this unique podcast collectively represent many, many decades of insights, personal experiences, and valuable take-home messages on patient safety. Remember, the online print versions are also available at our website, with hyperlinks and a list of resources and any references that our case summary authors and our experts have recommended. I'm Nicola Cunningham. Thanks for listening.